I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest. Did the succession finale succeed edition? It's Wednesday, May 31st, 2023. On today's show, the apex predator of peak TV, uh, the epic uh, family dramedy succession has come to its much anticipated end. We can't wait to get our final say in. After their final say, we will discuss. And then the filmmaker Nicole Holof Center, uh, I would think it's fair to say a Gabfest favorite. She returns with You Hurt My Feelings, a comedy or a romantic comedy of sorts starring Julia Louis Dreyfus as a writer entering a period of crisis. And uh, finally, Barack Obama, you might know him. He's the documentary filmmaker. He has a series up on Netflix now called Working What We Do All Day. It's inspired by the, you know, classic Studs Terkel book. Uh, also very eager to discuss. Joining me today is uh, Julia Turner of the LA Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right, well, let's do it. Let's dive in. Let's make a show. But Julia, I think it bears saying we are making a different kind of show to uh, accommodate a different kind of finale. Yeah, well... Usually we would get into the specifics of a finale in a plus segment, but this week it seems like so many people are watching and talking about the succession finale that we figured we'd do the same. I've never had the occasion to talk about it on the show with you guys. You guys have talked about the show a couple of times. So we're going to kick off with a spoilerific discussion of the finale, what happened, what worked, what it meant. If uh, if this spoilerific discussion does not interest you or you want to save it till you've seen the finale, you can skip ahead a number of minutes that our producer will say here. The succession segment will end around the 20 or 21 minute mark, depending on the number of ads that are inserted at the top of the episode. So try around 20 or 21 minutes. Okay, Steve, take it away. All right. Well, I scarcely wrote an introduction. Succession is, of course, the epic, what to even call it, dramedy, tragedy, comedy on HBO. It tells the story of the Roy family patriarch and his search, or as it were, non-search for a successor to his gigantic Fox-like company. And that search took place principally among his three very emotionally damaged children. It has come to an end after four rousingly successful seasons uh, and the highly anticipated finale, as I'm sure most of you know, was this Sunday night. I think the best thing to do here is just dive in. First with a clip, though, we're going to hear Roman, Shiv, and Kendall, the three siblings, each claim that they've been given their late father's blessing to be CEO of his multi-billion dollar concern. Let's listen. Dad said that it would be me. When? Well, we were getting close again before, and you know this, mostly, and I was texting and he was warm and he said when I was with him late one night that it should be Hmm. persuasive. What else did he say when no one was around? That he was the Zodiac killer? That he did Tupac? Whatever. It's fucking, I said it, it's true, and yeah, fuck it. Do whatever you want with that. It's just the fucking truth. Well, he offered it to me too, Rome. Oh, yeah? He, he... He fucking promised it to me. Promised. When I was seven, he sat me down at the candy kitchen in Bridgehampton and he fucking promised it to me. Seven years old. Like, 
Can you imagine? Yeah. Picks or it didn't happen. That was messed up. Like, he shouldn't have done that. No. He shouldn't have said that. All right, Julia, let me start with you. There are so many handles to grab here. I'm just going to turn to you and say, what Like, what did you think of the end of the show? I both thought this was an amazing finale, and I particularly admired within it the decision to end the show after four years. Mm-hmm. Because the one question I had about the finale, the one potential flaw I saw in the finale, was the one major, I thought, flaw in the show, which was the way in which it all just seemed circular and, and you know, the new alliances would form and someone would stab someone in the back and, you know, they it, they were like a little flock of birds that would land and then all flutter up and land in a slightly different place. And they just kept doing that over and over and over again. And at a certain point, it made it hard to care too much about the machinations. And I think the creators of the show were aware of that feeling in the show and knew that it was time for the dance to come to a stop. But wow, so many good scenes, so many stunning twists. I want to get to the the beautiful, beautiful scene between the siblings in the kitchen in their mother's house, where they're behaving as they did as children. And you can see sort of who they were before they grew up into the gnarled and contorted people that they became. But the question mark scene... I'm going to get right into it. I didn't totally understand why Shiv Mm. suddenly decided to tank the deal or decided she didn't know what her vote should be. Once they get into the conference room and, and Kendall starts insisting that it should be his and goes so far and so pathologically far as to pretend that he had lied to them when he confessed that he was responsible for the death of the caterer, then her choice is obvious. And I get sort of thematically why in a show called Succession, the woman who is pregnant with the descendant of the Titan um, might make the choice to become the consort of the CEO rather than the squabbling sibling of the CEO. So all of that made sense, but I didn't totally understood what got her from the camaraderie of the Caribbean kitchen to that hesitation in the boardroom. And I'm curious if you guys have theories. On that specific point, actually, Slate's own Isaac Butler had an interesting theory about this that he floated on Twitter, which I think makes complete sense, is that the moment she leaves the boardroom, she doesn't quite know why. Mm -hmm. You know, that she feels a sense, it probably is mainly a sort of sense of selfish, you know, why can't it be me? But for whatever reason, she runs out and takes a moment. But that information she subsequently receives when her two brothers join her in that second space and then get into a wrestling match that... uh, that really none of them are fit to run the company and that the only way to salvage whatever scrap of a sibling bond they have left, as we saw in the meal fit for a king kitchen scene, is to hand over the company to Matson. Right. I So I have a c- couple of different thoughts. I think I totally agree with you and Isaac, right? I She leaves in a, a state that indicates she doesn't quite know what where her resistance comes from. She doesn't stay and offer a reason. She has to flee. But I will say this, that extraordinary moment, given the trajectory of all four seasons, when Kendall actually finally sits upon the throne, right? He sits in the swivel chair behind the um, 
power desk of his father. And Kendall does not look like he belongs there. He looks like Dukakis on top of the tank. And he, he doesn't look, he himself does not look comfortable in it. That sight must be deeply unnerving and insulting at some level to Shiv, who's always being schemed against by her patriarchal father, sexist father, and her two brothers, who at the end of the day don't take her seriously. Um, and then there's just the simple question of like, Shiv has another play. She knows her husband is about to be CEO. She doesn't love it. She has to go back to Tom. They're in the quintessential hell is other people marriage, right? As the extraordinary final shot of Shiv, <laughs> which we'll also get to, shows us one last exquisite, iconic time. But she does have a play and she can end up on the inside. And as you say, Julia, she can keep that lineage intact, which is kind of wonderful because it's this insanely primitive, like Athenian tragedy at the center of all this, which has to do with bloodlines and successions within a hyper-capitalist universe. It's like a deeply, weirdly anachronistic palimpsest, right? Where something Sophoclean is overlayered with something Shakespearean, is overlaid with, you know, Dallas and Dynasty. I mean, much like, you know, it's a work of art compared to those. But, um, there is a primitive, deeply primitive resolution within this deeply hyper-capitalist and postmodern world, which is that the person bearing Logan's direct descendant is in the inside of the palace. Well, I will also say, I mean, I don't know that it's a concession or a compromise. I mean, it's obviously compromised in many ways, but there's that phone call at the very beginning of the episode where she reaches out to Tom to basically say, do you think maybe we should try? Absolutely. Uh, like yep. try a real relationship. Like she seems to want that. And he says he's not sure. And so, I mean, I think one theory is, you know, I mean, Kendall is so insane in that room. What's her line? I love you, but I can't stomach you. Mm. As soon as they get into the sidebar, you understand why she does what she does. But but maybe maybe the information about Tom is just kind of slowly seeping into her, and she's realizing that if what she wants is to try with Tom, that it would make sense, that it would be easier to have this child as married parents um, than one way to remain married to Tom is to be the one who crowns him king. Um, and that will also be closer to the company than she probably would be as as Kendall's sister. And then I also think, in a way, her whole relationship with Tom, you know, she married him because he was so groveling and so lowly, and she felt so safe being able to stomp all over him. But it's basically once he starts treating her as her dad did and betraying her and stomping on her, that she starts to feel like, oh, this is what love is. I, I recognize this. Yeah, she starts Great. to respect him, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she starts to respect him for treating her like shit. Yeah, amazing. And so, it, I mean, I just was amazed by the degree to which this ended up being sort of Shiv's episode and, and on some level Shiv's show. And she is our entry point character in the pilot where she's the, the you know, sane liberal from outside who's coming into this kooky company. She's kind of the Michael Corleone of this, right? Like the heir who might actually be something radically different than the godfather and that part of the arc of the whole drama is becoming his father, becoming the godfather. But um, but 
in some sense, this is true of all of them, right? It's true of Kendall too, right? Like that they're all Michael Corleone potentially here. Yeah, I mean, the series does end on Kendall, right? And in some sense, I think yeah. the, the structurally the show regards him as the protagonist and the last, per, or, you know, the antihero and the last person that you see looking out to see being shadowed by Logan's old bodyguard, Colin, is Kendall. And I had something to say about him in the sidebar scene that we keep getting to, the moment that the siblings, you know, mm. go off to that second boardroom to wrestle about the big decision. And I mean, it also provides another motivation for Shiv to to sell the company is that he denies what could be regarded as the sort of Chekhov's gun of the entire series since season one, which is his, you know, accidental murder of a caterer at Shiv's wedding via that Chappaquiddick-like incident. And yet when Shiv brings it up at that moment and says, well, I don't think you're fit to lead because you killed that waiter at my wedding, uh, he denies that it happened. I felt bad and I... I false memory it like i'm i'm totally clean i can do this wait did it happen or did it not happen it did not happen uh, it did not uh, happen. i wasn't even there it did not happen dude fucking vote for me i mean that's just a, another moment that you really see how dysfunctional he is and also how little he's changed. And that goes to a bigger question than any of the individual characters, which is what's the genre of succession? It's something that people have been talking about since the show started. Like you called it a dramedy, but also a Shakespearean tragedy. For me, the show is strongest when it's not tragic. Although I have to say the funeral episode is one of my favorite episodes of the entire show. It's astounding. Uh, But, I think that the structure of the show is almost like a sitcom. I mean, it's an hour long, but it is one of those family scenarios where characters don't change, right? And where that circularity that Julia is talking about, which could become some, somewhat annoying in right. the middle seasons, uh, is is part of what the show is about, is that, you know, there's, there's really not any hope that anybody's going to have a character arc that no. helps them change. To the extent that anyone does, maybe Shiv does, because of that, that decision she makes. But... The Kendall you see at the end, I think, is he's both tragic and comic. I mean, he's tragic in that, you know, it's really implied that he is at least thinking about jumping off the pier and killing himself, right? And we've seen him almost drown already in the series and associated him with water and the accident, that the water, etc. But yet there's something comic about the fact that Kendall is going to Kendall no matter what the the surrounding situation might be. No, I I totally agree. I mean, there's another genre or literary kind in which people don't change tragedy isn't about change or personal growth it's the opposite it's about people over through a set of horrific circumstances having a blind spot their blind spot their characteristic blind spot ripped away from them so they have to see their own character um maybe not whole but to an extent that they come to understand that their essence and their fate are one horrific thing, right? And I thought that that's what this show was about. Uh, to me, the show was very boring in many ways when it was purely about rivalries and Waystar and Gojo and, you know, we're getting 190 bucks a share instead of whatever. That was, I thought it was fun, whatever, but that was just TV. What made it remarkable was it was about an, an economic inheritance, right, which in their cases are, is mammoth, and an emotional inheritance, which turns out is equally mammoth and deranging as the economic one. And I thought 
the show is incredible for taking you in this prurient and very fun way into the inside of the ultra riches lives, right? But it also took you into the inside of their egos. And it was a show by implication about how those egos, which are deformed, have deformed the public landscape that the rest of us live in, i.e. not the plains and the houses of the ultra rich. And so I thought it was a serious satire all along, a morally centered satire. And the second thing I'll say is I agree with Michael Shulman, who wrote the extraordinary profile of Jeremy Strong, the actor who plays Kendall, that this is his show in some sense, that his drama, each kid has a person they might have been. Roman is very smart, and you get glimpses of how smart he is. Shiv has a political conscience. Kendall, in some sense, is more achingly hard because Kendall, I do believe, is in search of real personhood at some level. And this other part of him that has been horrifically fucked up by his father will never find it but will always yearn for it and it gets bound up over and over again in his um own deformed will to power and so we are seeing the quintessential damage of the rich play out within him in some sense and um and the thing that's remarkable about the showman profile of strong is Strong doesn't think he's in a comedy. He sincerely was surprised when Kieran Culkin said, dude, you know this is a comedy. And he was like, no, it's not. And Julia, it seems to me it was that at the center of all of this. There was a very unarch, very unknowing performance by Strong at the center of it that Kendall was a, a serious human being at some level, trapped inside relentlessly trivializing modes of self-importance. And that, to me, was as compelling a portrait as of Tony Soprano or uh, Walter White. Yeah, I mean, it's it's Strong's show and it's Shit's show and it's Rome. I mean, it, that's that's just part of what's so remarkable about it is how fully realized all of these people are, how each of their arcs has, makes a lot of sense. I mean, to me, one of the things that was most striking about that final scene, he's too rich to commit suicide. Not that that's what one ever wants for any character, but like the natural end point of him in that moment, having realized that the only thing he was billed to do warped from when he was seven at the candy kitchen with his dad is this thing that he will now never be able to do. It's implied that he wants to take his own life, but he has a bodyguard, so he so he can't and he won't. You know what I mean? Like that that I thought was um, was an amazing touch in that scene. Yeah, that is a good point, Julia. He's he's both cursed and blessed with the bodyguard that's going to tail him for the rest of his life. I mean, because we haven't talked about his last moment, I just have to say that one of my favorite moments in the entire finale was Roman's tiny smile when he sits down to have a martini by himself at the end. And the yeah. Mona Lisa mystery of what he's smiling about, you know, whether he's feeling a moment of liberation, that he doesn't have to pretend to be a business guy for the rest of his life. Or, you know, is it a nihilistic smile of despair? Who knows? Roman is such a mystery and Kieran Culkin so fantastic fantastic in that role. But the last thing I want to say about Succession before we wrap, which we need to do, is that this is the third time we've talked about the show. We debated whether to return to it or not because we've already had two discussions about it. And I just wanted to encourage people who who are somewhat ambivalent about the show, as I have been throughout its entire run, to keep going with it because it's a rare show that I think Julia is absolutely right. It ends on time and it lands that plane beautifully. And after being somewhat frustrated with some of the middle seasons and having a little bit of a sense that I've talked about on the show of sort of like queasy, guilty pleasure about right. watching it where it doesn't make you feel good because the, the segment of society it focuses on is such an insular bubble, et cetera, et cetera. 
I would just say that if you're ambivalent about the show but you're intrigued, keep on going because some extraordinary things do happen in this whole last season, not just the final episode. All right. Here, here. I totally agree. All right. The show is succession. It's now over. Uh, we'd love to get mail on this one. Shoot us an email. Let's uh, move on. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. All right, before we go any further, this is typically in the show where we discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we have? Stephen, once again, we have just one item of business, and that is to tell listeners about our Slate Plus segment. This week, we're answering a question that Julia came up with off the top of her head. She said, we know we've talked before on the show about what's your secret superpower, right? A skill, an everyday skill that you find yourself to be unusually good at and pride yourself on. Julia thought it would be fun to do the inverse of that and ask, what is your secret kryptonite? In other words, what's the thing that you're unusually bad at? And nobody knows. We thought this was a great idea. So we will each share one or two of our secret kryptonites for this week's Slate Plus segment. If you are a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that at the end of the show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, you can become one by signing up at slate.com slash culture plus. In exchange for your Slate Plus membership, you will get ad-free podcasts. You'll get bonus content like the segment I just described, which many other Slate podcasts offer as well. And best of all, you get unlimited access to all of the writing on slate.com. You will never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. These memberships really matter to Slate. They help support us and support our show. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that sign up is slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, what's next? All right. Well, You Hurt My Feelings is the new indie comedy feature film from uh, the filmmaker Nicole Hall of Center. It stars Julia Louis-Dreyfus as Beth. She's a creative writing teacher in the process of completing a second book. She's written the book, but it's not out yet. It's her first novel, which makes her feel very vulnerable. And she's married to a therapist who is himself at a tender crux in his own career. Their marriage enters a crisis mode when Beth overhears him admitting to a friend that he dislikes her new book. Tobias Menzies stars as her therapist husband, and Michaela Watkins is her sister, plays her sister. Let's uh, let's listen to a clip here. Beth is talking to her sister right after they overhear Beth's husband trashing the book. Okay, he doesn't love your book. I mean, who cares? Do you understand? I've been working on this book for two years, uh-huh. right? I've given him like a million drafts to read. And every time he reads it, every single time he tells me how much he loves it. 
every single time. Because he just doesn't like, you know, get it or whatever. And now my hands have gone numb. Yeah, take for a, real. Okay, can you take a deep breath? I am breathing, Sarah. All right. Would you just? <sighs> you're gonna talk to him. Well, that's a joke. I am never gonna be able to look him in the face ever again. Okay, that's over. And now let me start with you. Um, ever since Nicole Hall Center made her debut in the 90s with uh, Walking and Talking and then followed it up with Lovely and Amazing and a series of films since, you know, it's the same thing is always going to be said about her. Her canvas is small, verging on tiny. And uh, that's going to divide audiences. It divided critics. I'm curious to know what you thought of this new one. Oh, I mean, she's one of my my faves working. And, and in fact, when Walking and Talking had its 20th anniversary a few years ago, I interviewed her for Slade and wrote a little tribute to that movie, which I remember was constantly on cable in the 1990s. It was just like a comfort movie that was always there. And I had this sort of guilty relationship to my own love for it. It was sort of like, this movie isn't about anything. It's it's about this this thing that's never in movies, right? Just like two normal friends having sort of a, a crisis moment in their friendship. And it didn't seem like a big enough deal to be a movie that I loved as much as I did. And the way that movies have changed and moved since then makes movies like that even rarer and more precious. And I now sort of see that the very thing I felt sort of wasn't worth valuing and there must be something wrong with me as a viewer because I loved it so much is what we need to fight to preserve in movies, you know? And I start with that long disquisition on my history with Nicole Hall of Center just to say, I always look forward to her movies and I'm almost always pleasurably surprised by them. And I think this is one of her best in many, many movies. She's only made six, I believe. Uh, And this is one of my favorite movies of the year so far. It's it's really hard to get across how funny it is from that clip, because as I say in my review of the movie, she's not a one-liner kind of writer, you know? She's, She's somebody who creates humor out of entire contexts and you know, and, and out of character studies, which is what this movie really is. It's sort of like a four, four-way character study among these these four um, interrelated characters, right? A si- two sisters and their husbands uh, who all have these kind of crises that are partly personal, partly professional, that are essentially about, does my work matter? You know, do I mm-hmm. matter? And, you know, what will give me the strength to go forward? It's sort of a movie really about white lies in relationships and whether in yeah. the end they they damage relationships or they help to preserve them. And the movie is wonderfully equivocal on the answer to that. But mainly, I mean, I see this movie as a as a showcase for Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who is sort of the stand-in. She's the Nicole Hall of Center, you know, proxy in the movie. And it's just so wonderful to see Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who we all love in comedy, doing something that is a comedy, but it's a comedy that has more pain and struggle underneath the surface than, you know, than she was doing on, on Seinfeld or Veep, something like that. She's just, she's a fantastic muse for Hall of Center. And I love that they found each other in this and in Enough Said, the romantic comedy with James Gandolfini that Julia Louis-Dreyfus made a few years ago with her. I love that movie. And I love uh, this filmmaker's work. Julia, the nonetheless, admirers of her bear something of the burden of describing or explaining, I should say, the considerable discrepancy between the size of their affection for Nicole Hall of Center and at least superficially the scale of the movies, which is which is teeny tiny in some ways. Um, what do you make of all that? I mean, I really enjoyed watching this as I do all Nicole Hall of Center movies. I think the precision of her depiction of human relationships, both what creates joy within them, what creates tension within them, how there can be tension within them that does not actually undermine them. So often in film, 
sometimes in film relationships are the point, and then sometimes in film relationships are like fleshed out to give you just enough feeling for the next set piece. So it really matters who wins this the knife fight on the scaffolding or who does the parkour through the top of Tunisia, you know, like so, so often the relationships are functional to the plot rather than this. The relationships exist to create stakes for the plot rather than being the plot, the very, very subtle fluctuations in human relationships being the plot themselves. So I always love that. I, I had two slightly conflicting responses to this, which is that always Holofsener's world has felt pretty niche or very specific and, but also the questions have been universal. What happens when there's a crisis in a friendship? What happens when friends end up with differing amounts of money as in friends with money? Um, and this question of what if you and your partner have creative class-ish jobs and your partner doesn't respect your creative class work is even narrower. <laughs> it seems slightly less universal in a way that maybe made this this one of her films feel a bit smaller. That was sort of my first response is like, I, I don't know, man, people not liking your novel. Like that's a very, very specific, you have, you, you kind of have to be an artist to have to worry about whether your spouse appreciates your art. Um, and that's an even smaller slice of the world than, than her films typically treat. But then I was thinking about it and you're right, both of you, and, and this actually connects to our, to, to our favorite documentarians, uh, work that we'll be discussing in a minute like it's also about work and contemplating what your work means and has meant in midlife. Like she's not sure if she's a good writer. Her husband's not sure if he's a good therapist. Her sister kind of hates being a designer and finally achieves triumph with a design problem and does not find it satisfying. Uh, her brother-in-law is uh, an actor of, of very modest success not successful enough to not quit, but not successful enough to feel like he succeeded. Um, so that, the, the, when the film, when I reclassed it as that, like just as to what has one made of one's life, then it begins to open onto the kind of universals that she gets at with her miniatures and, and it, it, it broadened the appeal to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will say just like most primitively, I saw it in a very full movie house um overwhelmingly the audience was made up of women over the age of 50 many over the age of 60 or 70 it really landed in the room as it were and it really landed with me as a comedy and it understands and accepts the burden of being painted on a tiny canvas with even smaller brushes um and i think it does that in two senses one is that it, the burden is, is of all four of those people is as the creative middle class. They're the, in some ways the last remaining bearers of the burden of the calling, right? Like they, it's not just that they are middle class or upper middle class or creative class or however you want to class identify them. They bear this other burden, which is that work should not only be deeply meaningful; it should express your own personal essence and your narrative arc in the largest construed in the largest possible way it is a calling in that old like luther protestant sense of like you are called to be a therapist you're called to be a creative writer of some kind on and on and all you can experience as such a human being i mean probably ever right but now in the 21st century is disappointment and a kind of you know 
going over with like a micro, like micro specking your own conscience for the ways, like disappointment is essentially the recipe of your life in some sense. I mean, and you're spoiled rotten for being able to measure your, your existential pain in terms of that specific disappointment, something the movie's aware of. It's not unaware of that. It's a satire, a loving satire on this class of people. And so I thought it was very resonant. And I just want to say very quickly, there's another remarkable moment because there's a running joke, Dana, that I find hilariously funny in this movie, which is that her first book is an abuse memoir, but all she suffered, quote unquote, all she suffered was verbal abuse. And the movie's the script is very, and Julia Lee Dreyfus is very funny about that, like kind of talking up the verbal abuse that she got from her father. And it's a hilarious joke. And then there's a scene in which another person sympathizes, has read the book and admires it and sympathizes. And you realize her deceased father destroyed her. It's like the shadow of Logan Roy in a much smaller environment. And the movie in this gentle way says, you all laughed. We laughed. I laughed writing it. This woman's pain is very real. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus is up to the task of depicting that. She's a wonderful dramatic actress, and she's terrific in this. Yeah, and in a beautiful piece of detailed writing. And here's where Nicole Holliston really shines as a writer. You know, her movies sound very naturalistic, the dialogue, yeah. but every detail matters. There's a scene where Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character is all alone. She's looking at her manuscript, which she now hates, of course, and insulting herself over and over. Mm. And the term that she uses, right, This the insult she's throwing at herself, it comes out later, is what her father used to call her when she was a child. And it's something that the movie doesn't showcase or highlight. You have to just pick it up as it goes. That's beautiful. I hadn't noticed that. I noticed them disparately but not together. That's lovely. Why don't we button it there? We more or less cherish this person's work, and this is a great example of it. Check it out. You Hurt My Feelings. It's in theaters now. Of course, it'll be streaming one day, but maybe go see it with an audience. You will laugh. All right, let's move on. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. All right. Well, Working, What We Do All Day is a four-parter on Netflix. It's a docuseries from Barack and Michelle Obama. It's uh, Much of it is directed by Carolyn Suh of uh, She of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. And it's inspired by the Studs Terkel classic. Uh, the book Working came out in the 70s, in which Terkel interviewed a workers across the American economy. Um, here, Barack Obama is host uh, and the voiceover talent, and he follows the day-to-day lives of 12 people, they're in home care, uh, hospitality, and tech. The show begins at the service worker level and then makes its way up over the course of it to the C-suite. In the clip, you're going to hear Barack Obama talking to a woman named Randy. She's a home care aide in Mississippi, and the two of them walk around a grocery store. It's a Piggly Wiggly, actually. I've been in a Piggly Wiggly, and they're casually chatting. Let's, uh, let's have a listen. Do you have an idea in your mind about what work should be? Because some folks, like my mother-in-law and my grandmother, you know, their attitude was, I don't go to work to feel good or to get meaning or... I go to work, I go to, to, pay work to pay my bills. And I think younger folks, I think our attitude 
you know how I said our attitude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You're young as you feel, baby. <laughs> but especially with your generation, I think sometimes people expect that they should feel fulfilled in their work, that paying the bills isn't enough. I just want to be at home, on my porch, in my rocking chair. My refrigerator's full, my bills is paid, my child is killed. That's, that's the dream. You find That's peace. You feel like it's harder for folks now than it used to be to just do what you described? Yes. How come? It's $6.15 for a box of cereal. Because that's expensive. I make $10 an hour. Julia, let me start with you. This is a rare show that's kind of thematically linked across all three topics, the ultra-rich, the you know creative middle class. And here, the service industry workers, uh, at least the show begins with uh, the essential workers, the truly essential workers that prop up the entire economy and make up about 50% of the country population-wise. What did you make of this show? Well, we should note that Obama is in good company in wanting to uh, revive Stud Sturkle's working, since, of course, the Slate podcast working founded by David Plotz was done so with the same spirit in mind. Um, I wished this show were more like Stud Sturkle's working, I think. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I think what the, you know, the Obamas have this very... I've had this lucrative deal as as their company Higher Ground with Netflix. They've financed and made a couple different things. Uh, I was interested in seeing what Obama wanted to make of the question of work at this moment in his post-presidency um, and at this moment in the post-pandemic when I think in general the national relationship to work has somewhat changed. And the documentary was disappointing to me on a couple levels, one, it was, I think, f- forced in its polemic. I mean, it was super interesting to to follow along with a you know Uber Eats driver and understand the actual economics of that gig economy job. And and you know, work has changed even since since Slate relaunched Working, however many years ago. So, the particulars of the of the people whose jobs and lives were shown were certainly interesting, which is which is always the enduring appeal of the original idea. But it feels like Obama kind of can't resist actually just making the political argument. And if what it takes to get Netflix to make a documentary about class divides in America is is Obama as the host and narrator, okay, fine. But Higher Ground, you know, also financed um, or, or produced American Factory, that extraordinary documentary we saw, which was just so much more revealing in, in certain ways about about working life. And similarly, the production felt a little thin. Like, you know, the, the woman we meet, who we hear in that clip, who's working as a home health aide, ends up quitting because the schedule is too unpredictable and she has a young child and she has a particular childcare setup that she can afford, but she can't afford to change it at the drop of a dime. But we don't see her. We don't see her getting, you know, like the, the amount of documenting that is happening in this documentary is not enough that you actually see her being excited about the new job. We get that. But then you don't see her like realizing in week three that, She's getting this request from her boss to actually stay till midnight, and she can't do that because she has a child. Like, I don't know, it felt a little thin. Felt a little thin. What'd you guys think? Yeah. 
I mean, to me, the best thing about this show is the structure. I, I love the idea that it's four episodes. Each one's about 45 minutes. And it doesn't just hop from place to place. It basically ascends the hierarchy, the org chart of, of these various different institutions. So the Pierre Hotel in New York, for example, in the first episode, you see the life of a maid, a room cleaner at the hotel. Then you see somebody who operates the switchboard, who's a little bit more a member of the middle class in the next episode. Then you see the general manager of the whole hotel, who is this, you know, elegant Frenchman who's organizing events and things like that. But even he is subordinate to the CEO of the company who lives in India, right, mm-hmm. who you meet in the last episode. So and and whatever uh, institutions they're looking at, you know, kind of ascend in that same way. So you see the um, the net get broader and broader. That is very uh, compelling. And it's a great way to think about um, outsourcing of labor and, you know, the, the various issues, economic issues that that pertain in a world where, you know, your ultimate boss might be off in India somewhere. The problem, though, is that the the righteous rage that should be stoked by moments like, you know, the woman observing, look, there's a $6.15 box of cereal. I make $10 an hour, right? Like if I bought two boxes of cereal, that's, you know, more than I make in an entire hour of work. That that righteous rage kind of gets stoked, but there's nowhere for it to go because the show is not hard-hitting enough, you know? I mean, it, it, for example, I think, kind of cherry-picks the companies and the CEOs that it's going to showcase so so that they can get access to them so that they'll do the show, right? Mm-hmm. And so they'll sit down and talk to Obama right. and, and so that we'll have somewhat of a warm, fuzzy feeling about, you know, the, the capitalist system that might need some tinkering. You know, this is, I think, the big critique of the show is that essentially it's, it's, it's reinforcing, you know, neoliberal complacency about how we can just tinker with the economy and fix it and we don't have to take the whole thing down to the studs. Right. And uh, and ultimately, one of the three or four CEOs he talks to in the final episode is this very rare kind of hero CEO. She runs a home care company for seniors, right, that we've followed throughout the four episodes. And she only takes a $40,000 salary a year because, you know, because she is this very rare do-gooder unicorn, right, who's running a successful company and not you know, raking in most of the profits for herself. And the, and she's the only one who discloses her salary. So that's just an example of how I feel like the show is constantly pulling its punches mm-hmm. and, you know, showing you things uh, that that make you think big thoughts about how the economy works and then shutting those thoughts down. Right. I mean, it, it's like I did feel, oh, dear, I'm eating my Obama vegetables all over again. You know, it really brought me back to the, his presidency and all the good ways and the bad ways. I think the show is wonderful in all the ways the Obama presidency was wonderful, that this kind, intelligent, thoughtful, articulate, um, you know, brilliant man was ever in charge of our country is just extraordinary. It's painfully disappointing, though, because he wants to bind up the country's wounds without actually fighting the Civil War in some sense. As you say, there the the basis for like his entire presidency kicked off with a basis for rage that was so widely felt on the american public that something like 200 to 1 the calls were coming into the white house to don't bail out the wall street banks and obama kind of played it down the middle and his presidency got off to exactly the wrong start right and it, in some sense it's the same thing there's this rage that you feel watching this right this World defined by uh, penury wages, peonage, and social invisibility, which the show is doing a wonderful job showing you up close. Um, 
there are these intelligent gestures to the, to, to the idea that the gig, gig and hustle economy didn't come from nowhere. And the one that I found most heartbreaking, Julia, was the Kodak. They flat, flash back to this quintessential country company that got Darwin out of existence, Kodak, you know, physical film in, in, in analog cameras. And the point that they make is that you were an integrated, you weren't a gig worker or a, a, a contracted worker if you were at the bottom of the um, totem pole there. You were actually enfolded within the structure of the, of the company as a full employee with benefits and a pension. And you attended the picnics and you were part of a community created by the company that, um, um, you know, highly paternalistic and imperfect in many ways. But the documentary is explicit about the social visibility and the basic level of decency and care conferred upon you by that paternalistic system. And the country didn't just de-unionize. And there's this gesture at the beginning of the second episode about the 1980s and the shift that happened then. But it, you have to do justice to the outright greed and villainy that went into making that change. And Obama, at the end of the day, longs to be a consensus figure on the order of Lincoln. And um, as a symbolic one, he is for obvious reasons. But as a substance of one, I think he proof-rocked it. He didn't dare to eat the peach he of, didn't. of socialism. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm glad this exists, like of all the things that Netflix is putting into the world at a moment when it's probably about to start putting fewer things into the world, as are all of the competitor companies in Hollywood, like the notion that Obama is using his producing power to put stories of inequality into the world and to remind us of, you know, the the economic reality at the opposite end of the spectrum of succession is good. It's clearly a thematic interest in their work. You know, this project seemed less effective to me than, um, you know, American Factory or Project where they hire just or support the work of really top-notch people and kind of stay out of the way. I mean, I think just as a host, you know, Obama was not, he wasn't interviewing these people. It doesn't seem like he met with most of them. He, there's a couple scenes, you know, that that scene of him in the grocery store is unusual, right? Like there's not, um, we spend a lot of time with the subjects without Obama around as well. And so I almost wonder if his level of involvement on this one was sort of a distorting influence and if if stories of inequality are going to continue to be told and that's part of what Obama is doing with his post presidency like better than the alternative. All right, it's on Netflix. It's called Working What We Do All Day. Check it out. Tell us what you thought. Let's move on. All right, well now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. What uh, what do you have? Steve, flowing out of the conversation we just had about this new Netflix show based on Studs Terkel's book, Working, I'm going to recommend Studs Terkel's radio show. Uh, I guess now it's a podcast, but his very long-running radio show on WFMT in Chicago. Really long-running. We're talking, this show ran for 45 years, from 1952 Whoa. to 1997, and it was just simply a, an interview format. He would talk to a different person about their work uh, every day. I believe it was on every single weekday in Chicago for 45 years, which is just a, an insane legacy, along with everything else he was doing during that time. And nobody interviews quite like Studs Terkel. He just, he could sit down with anyone. He was really a sort of a man of the people. You know, he could have done very well what Obama does in Piggly Wiggly with that woman pushing a grocery cart. 
but he could also sit down with, you know, statesmen, artists, just just talk to anyone about anything. The way I happened to discover this archive, the WFMT archive of Turkle interviews, is because he interviewed Buster Keaton in 1960. And it's one of the best conversations anyone ever had with this very taciturn oh, wow. man who, who liked to tell the same stories over and over and didn't really like to be interviewed. But Studs Turkle really gets into the meat of sort of, you know, what was your process making movies and manages to find questions that he wants to answer and gets him to tell stories he never told anywhere else. So that's worth listening to. But he also talks to, I mean, everyone. He talks to James Baldwin. He talks to the mm. mime Marcel Marceau. He talks to Woodward and Bernstein right after Watergate in 1974. So like a great moment to talk about, you know, what, what they had just meant to the culture. Uh, Nora Ephron is on, I mean, it's just a giant, you know, every sort of, you know, intellectual artist or sort of political figure you can think of from that 45-year period is as likely as not to show up in the archive. And it's very nicely organized online with a database that's nicely searchable. We'll put a link to it on our show page, but it's, yeah, WFMT.com. Go to the Studs Turkle archive. That's amazing. Oh, my Lord. I'm going to lose myself in that. Thank you, Dana. Uh, Julia. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. What do you have, Julia? Um, uh, Okay. This is is a classic sky is blue, up is up, down is down endorsement from... JT here, but discovering this changed my life, and on the off chance it changes the life of even one listener, I think it is worth sharing. I did not know about freezing crusty bread sliced. Did you guys know about this? Do you know about this? <laughs> I mean, the concept of freezing bread? Yeah, bread freezes well. My parents always freeze their bread, and then you get it out slice by slice and toast it. And toast it. This is your yeah. life hack? Yes, I didn't know this. I basically thought that when you bought like a beautiful bowl of bread, you had to like eat as much as you wanted as fast as you could. And then like it got sad and hard and it's a little bag on the counter. And then you just were like, oh, bummer. Maybe I should make it into breadcrumbs or you threw it out. But if you buy it sliced and or slice it and freeze it sliced in a Ziploc like after the first day when you use it. I love it. But like. Freezing sliced bread is the greatest thing since sliced bread. (laughs) Yes, and, invented but all of great. three seconds after the invention of sliced bread. <laughs> well, there was a bit of a lag for me, and just on the off chance that anyone else does not know this life hack, it's so great if you just have a bag of like crusty country sourdough sliced in your freezer. Like you can scramble eggs for lunch and put it on. You just pop it in the toaster, and then it's delicious. Julie, you can't spell Look, sliced I... bread without iced bread. <laughs> <laughs> I just went up high with Dana. That was so good. This is actually making me happy because for once Julia is getting mocked for her goofy endorsement instead of me. It's like so precious. I feel like I'm always getting mocked. I just I have no shame. I'm not too proud to say I did not really understand that you could do this. I knew that of course you could slice I mean that you could freeze bread like the whole thing and then you would like take it out and like heat it up in the oven and then cut it but freezing it sliced don't, don't try to walk it back <laughs> I'm not I'm doubling down I have no shame I bet you that somebody on this podcast somebody listening does not know this and this will improve their lives and uh, if in fact every single listener already knew this and I merely just uh, telling the story of my enjoyment, well, so be it. But, no, that's great because um, you never have that horrible morning where you wake up and you want toast, but you would have to go out and get bread for your toast. And also like tossing really good like a loaf of country sourdough because it, as you say, turned, you know, petrified is really sad. So It's I, so sad. It's really yeah. sad. Also, 
Very quickly, I, I love the way this kind of calls back to maybe the most underrated character in Succession, both as a character and a performance and as the importance to the whole thing, the mother <laughs> with her knobbies. Oh. <laughs> right? Doesn't she have a bag of frozen knobbies? Isn't frozen the... bread knobbies, yes. Yeah. That looks more like, that doesn't look like a beautiful country bull. No. That looks no. like some, some pepperidge, pepperidge farm shards. Farm. But yeah. Yes, exactly. And that's a trait that she was established with earlier in the show, that she never has food, which is just such a perfect kind of, perfect. you know, the classic sort of cold mo- wire monkey mother, right? <laughs> wire monkey. All right. Right. My... She's, she can't even nurture them on the most basic level. I'm going to take you so far off the hook, Julia Turner, now with my endorsement, which may Fantastic. even be more blockheaded than yours. Um, <laughs> Shoot. I, I'm going to endorse the TV show Jury Duty. <laughs> we talked about it last I week. I know, I'm, but I'm not just endorsing Jury Duty. I'm endorsing the finale, which I finally watched, which I don't know if you guys made it to the final episode. And if you didn't, just go ahead and watch. Do yourself a favor. Do me a favor. Watch the finale of it because it is one of the better hours of TV or whatever it was, 45 minutes of TV I've seen in a really long time. And it is by far the best that I've ever seen in that genre to the point where it's like literally an antidote for reality television in some sense. It's really weirdly moving it's beautifully done from a technical standpoint for all of what they do within it and it shows you that the entire show was constructed around a good guy and he basically passes he's like becomes the knight of faith in that final one because effectively what they do in the recap is they show how at each juncture he's faced with a test in some sense and passes it with f- flying colors. And also, by the way, it it totally um, cured me of my cynicism about the show. It is totally clear that he did not know that he, uh, you know, or never even came to suspect that he was somehow in a prank show um, or was the butt of a prank show or, you know, his guilelessness and his decency and his good humor in the moment really come out in the last episode and it's wonderful. It's really genuinely wonderful. It is, I, I understand that Succession is one of the greatest TV shows of all time and they nailed it on the finale. I can't compare this to that, but I am telling you it is of my so far 2023 viewing experiences. The two are in a class by themselves. I had one follow-up on Jury Duty, too, actually unrelated to me. I haven't finished Gone Beyond the first few episodes of the show and didn't love it. But the other night, I heard my actor daughter snorting away in the other room with laughter. And what did she discover on her own but Jury Duty? And specifically, she loved it as an actor. She said, Mom, you've got to watch this, so Jury Duty. I said, oh, we watched some of it for the show. And she said, oh, but... The, the things that these, the way it's between scripted and unscripted. I think for her, the idea of the challenge of being like an improv actor yeah. who has a certain amount of points you have to get across in a real scenario, but you do it in your own way, just seemed like such a challenge. And she considered the performances of the, you know, the 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 hired actors who are pretending to be jurors yes. just like towering. <laughs> so, it, and if she's gotten to the end, ask her, ask her about it. Uh, jury duty, the final episode. That's my endorsement. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Dana, thank you very much. Thanks to you. Very fun. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our introductory music is by the wonderful Nicholas Bertel. What a what a contribution he made to American culture with that succession theme song. It's remarkable. We're proud to have his uh, composing talents behind our theme song. Uh, hats off to Nick. And our production assistant is uh, Kat Hong. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. 